this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So you probably heard of the company Zero. They compete head-on with Intuit's QuickBooks. They've got 700,000 subscribers and were ranked by Forbes as one of the most innovative companies for 2014 and 2015. Company's run by a guy named Rod Jury. And what you may not know about Zero is he got the money to create Zero by selling another technology company, Aftermail. The interview goes into detail about the sale of Aftermail, and I think there are so many nuggets here. In particular, listen for Rod's thoughts on transitioning a service business into a product businesses. Um, how do you get acquirers to come to you? He's got some interesting insights to share with how do you exhibit at a trade show, in particular if your goal is to get acquired. Uh, he talks about public company arbitrage and how that can work to your favor, um, R&D by acquisition. And he ends with a $20 million mistake he made in the sale of Aftermail. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Rod Jury. Rod Jury, founder, CEO of Zero. I'm so thrilled to have you on Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Really looking forward to this. So we're going to get to zero, but I want to go back to the company that gave you the money to start zero. That was a company called Aftermail. So you guys were in the email business, I understand. Yeah, that's right. We, we built um, email archiving software that basically took email out of Microsoft Exchange and then modeled it, modeled it into a proper relational database. So we were able to reduce a huge amount of storage out of Exchange. It was when Sarbanes-Oxley was big, so we were like a flight data recorder for uh, email, but also CRM systems could now you know, get to all of that great customer data, which was sitting inside the email system. So yeah, it was a great little business. What was the business model? Like, who did you sell to, et cetera? Uh, we sold to large enterprise, and uh, all the things I've done have come from personal experience, and for me, it was always frustrating that, e- that, that, that email didn't leverage the power of relational databases. It's still very much a hierarchical model. But the interesting thing about Aftermail is we never set out to build a long-term business. We architected the, the whole business uh, to sell it. We, we saw that there was this R&D by acquisition model. We saw that US public companies had to buy small private companies. So, we, so the goal was never to build a world-class software company like what we're doing with Zero now. It was actually to make some money and also, I think, to prove that we could you know, build some world-class technology from a few rocks in the South Pacific. What decisions would you make differently uh, with a view that you were building to sell quickly Compared to now running zero, where you're building to build a long-term, you know, play. What? what give me an example of a decision that you might make differently under those two scenarios. 
Yeah, so you know, when you think about it, there's some long-term things you probably wouldn't build out if you were, you know, building a business that 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 you knew would probably sell. And I think also thinking about the types of customers, like I, I you know, I always wanted to build um, accounting software, but it didn't feel to me like a like a build up and flick quickly because there's a big responsibility to those small business customers. Whereas in the enterprise space, um, you know, it seemed much more appropriate that you would um, you know prove a bit of technology do that original R&D and then large corporates actually do need a, a much a much bigger entity as their supplier so it's it's much more appropriate and better for the customers whereas for for the small business and accounting space we actually think that we want to be the long-term holder because we really care about small businesses and and you know and we want to be there for a long time so so when I looked at doing um, what became zero it wasn't I'm a candidate for just building up and and trying to sell quickly whereas with aftermail and that sort of enterprise uh, part of the market uh, that did make a whole lot of sense so you know we sold the business within two years of starting it up Wow. So who's the we in Aftermail? Yeah. So, so there's sort of, uh, with all of these businesses, it's usually not just one person. Uh, so Duncan Ritchie, who's, who's now a chief product officer, and a few other sort of key people that we grew to that experience are in zero. And it actually goes back. So Aftermail was um, probably my third or fourth company. First one, we, first one we did was a services business. We actually grew a software development capability inside Ernst & Young where I was working. So a bit of internal entrepreneurship and we wanted to, um, you know, especially when Microsoft Access first came out back in the 90s, I really wanted to work with it. So the best way to do that was to sell some jobs. So we ended up starting a software development sort of arm inside uh, Ernst & Young. And then um, I always wanted to work for a software company and in New Zealand, there really weren't that many, so we ended up sort of peeling a team out of EY, and we built our own sort of Microsoft-focused consulting company, doing lots of bespoke applications, which was which was great experience. And a lot of the um, people we hired and brought on in that worked for me in zero uh, today, and uh, that was our first bit of money. We built that business up to about sixty people, probably about three or four million of revenue, and we sold that for about seven million dollars in the late 90s and then that gave me the capital to do a few other little startups and then um, uh, the the idea of Aftermail came along and you know and I had the money to sort of not have to get paid for a year so we kind of bootstrapped that based on basically not getting paid in a very small amount of capital and getting it up to a proof of concept and um, and eventually I think we got to two and a half three million of revenue, and at that time, we either had to go and raise a whole lot more capital, or we, we could go down the trade sale route. God, I want to get to that in a moment, but but talk to us about the difference and the transition from running a services company, your custom consulting shop, to a product company. I think listening to this program right now, Rod, I would say we've got a lot of service business owners who dream and aspire to have a product company. They hate being kind of beholden to a couple of uh, customers who wag the dog, so to speak, and they would love to have a product company. What advice would you give someone who's got a service business that aspires to have a product company? Yeah, so so this was something that we really thought about when we were doing the service businesses, business as well, because the same development tools that you're using to do your sort of consulting engagement and writing bespoke applications 
are very, very much um, the same sort of tools that you would use to build product. The big difference is time. You have to have the time to build some intellectual property. So the sort of thinking that we went through was, and we tried this a few times, could we um, start a new division that just did a product? The experience is that's actually very, very difficult to do. So what I found was the services business gives you fantastic experience. You build your network, but it's very, very difficult to actually peel off a part of that business into a whole new product. And there's all sorts of ownership issues. The the best, the most examples I've seen is actually when you go and start clean, and um, and that's all about time. So you know you're building your reputation, you're building uh, relationships, but really you do have to go out and raise capital to have that year or two to go and you know. Um, uh, build a pro- build a product and to show some traction. So there's probably are some good case studies of people that have done that transition. But I but what I found is in the experience looking back at a whole lot of friends who have been down that journey, um, it does make sense at some point to make that clean break, uh, which can be very very uh, traumatic. But then you've got a clean entity, and if you've got that experience, hopefully you can raise the capital to give you that year or two to to, to build a sustainable product. In your case, you had sold the services business for seven million bucks. You, you had some capital with Aftermail. Talk about the capital structure when you started the business. You had these these other founders. Did everybody have shares? Did you have some VC money in place? Yeah. So I'm in New Zealand. There wasn't really a sophisticated angel or venture capital market. So um, so what we did, we had sort of five main founders. So, so there was me and the first guy who really are the technical part of the team. And then there was another group of people who were really good at selling document management tools and those sort of things. So we pulled those people together. So we essentially had five founders that um, you know had already kind of paid for their houses from prior business success and were able to essentially not get paid for six to 12 months. So um, the amount of capital that we put in, because no one sort of had a huge amount of cash, you know, some of us owned our houses, but no one was sitting there with like millions of dollars in the bank or anything. So we had to really kind of bootstrap it by, by not getting paid. And then what we did was um, we got to revenue very early so once we had a prototype of aftermail working, and this is where the sales guys came in, we were able to go and sell um, uh, sell ten licenses. So we had a goal of let's get um, five government departments and five uh, private sector companies, um, and we'd sell them a sell them a license uh, for twenty grand. And but it was um, we would be able to book that revenue, but they would pay us as soon as we installed and everything worked. So our kind of revenue profile was like two hundred thousand in the first couple of months, but we didn't actually get the cash till six months later until we could uh, deliver. But it gave us some cash at the right time, but also ten reference case studies that we then uh, leveraged, and you know we grew that business up to sort of three or four hundred k a month in revenue. Got it. And so with these founders, um, you had these other founders in place. Did you maintain control of the board? If so, did you do that through two different share types uh, or two different share statuses? Or did you guys equally go down the middle? Like, How did you kind of control the company? Yeah, so I, I think um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really opposed to different share structures. I don't, just don't think that's fair. So we've always kept it clean. And even with zero now, um, and we've had Hedge funds and venture capitalists. We've raised, uh, you know, over four hundred million uh, with zero. We've kept it to just a single structure of, of shares. That's just something which I believe in. So I've always enforced. Um, 
and I see boards as uh, people that can really help your business. So we did have a board with Aftermail quite early, and those people were incredibly valuable to the business. And I think if you're a good founder, the, then you can manage the board and you take advice from the board. So in all of the various businesses I've done, I've never found the board to be a real problem. In fact, they've been people that help drive the business forward. That doesn't mean to say you don't have very, very tough um, board meetings, all of those things. But in general, you should have the right people that actually help help you go forward. So boards have never been a problem for me, as have having just a single class of share. But were you able to control enough shares to have the ultimate ultimatum on any decision? Um, it never really came to that. I think, uh, you know, we'd have great debates, but if you're doing the right things, then everyone um, believes in what you're doing. So, I mean, the big decisions for us were to take some capital. Well, that was a no-brainer, so we did that. So eventually we took a million dollars of angel funding. We, what was interesting about that, though, once we got to two to 300 grand in billings um, and you realize as a software company you don't get paid for two to three months because you'll book the invoice and you've got to go and do the work. It has to be accepted. Then it goes through a payment process. So once you sort of got to 200 grand worth of monthly billings, you actually needed about 600 grand of working capital just to fund the business. So the, the million dollars of angel investment we took wasn't actually to do R&D. It was really just to fund working capital. And that was a really big lesson, which uh, obviously is, is very relevant to, um, to the Zero product we have today. Um, and then we got to a point where we could either really go for it and go and try to raise $5 million, or at that point, we, we could sell the business. So we decided to go down the selling the business route. I want to get to the sale. Before I do that, um, what was it like raising the angel investment round? Uh, you know, we've got a lot of listeners who are probably contemplating bringing in an angel investor. What lessons can you share about that? Yeah, so uh, I mean, everything's changed from back, you know, ten years ago. Now, angel investments much more formal, and uh, there's a whole whole lot of normal. There's a whole lot of angel groups that exist, and VC funding tends tends to be later stage after angel investment. Um, but but back in those days, and 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 it's true today as well. That first angel, you know, it may be the first investment that they do because the kind of dirty little secret about angel investment is that it's actually really hard and it's very difficult for a first-time investor to pick winners. But what you do find is there's people that have domain knowledge in your industry that might have sold a business, have some capital, they want to do something. So what we've, what I found uh, was... Um, you know, finding angel investors where it may be their first deal. They're not really formal angel investors, but they're, they're um, attracted to working in a startup and get exposed to, you know, the magic of software. So, so that's what we had. We, we had an angel investor who was part of our network. He, he may have done a few other smaller deals, but was really keen to do something in software. And he turned out to be a great, um, a great director. And because we sold the business so quickly, you know, he made some good money, which meant that he then paid it forward and did a number of angel invest investments since then as well. Great. So let's get into the actual sale of Aftermail. So you're, you're, you're going along, and as I understand, you've got this a million bucks from an angel investor. You, you're, you've got 2 or $3 million in revenue. Still, I think most people on the outside would say a very early stage company. What triggered you to want to sell it? Yeah, so we, I mean, um, one of the interesting things about Aftermail is because there was sort of five main founders and we sort of knew each other. It wasn't my my normal team of people. They were great people, but they weren't the normal people that I work with. So there was still quite a lot of tension in that team. And, and you know, and, and by necessity, we had to have 
you know, five people as sort of major shareholders at the start. Um, so, you know, it was quite stressful. It was the first kind of CEO gig that I did, and I had lots of lessons to learn and all of those things. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say that the wheels were falling off, but, you know, it certainly was pretty pretty stressful. And um, uh, and so we had the opportunity to go and raise a whole lot of money and put that capital and to build our team out. But we also knew that we'd kind of done just enough that we had proved that this works and there was a massive market opportunity. And if a larger company came in and took the product, we could really build quite a quite a um, important product in uh, the category. Help me, so, squ- help me square something, Rod, because on one hand, I'm hearing it's all kumbaya at the board level. Everybody's doing the right thing for the customer. Everything's wonderful. But then on the other hand, you're saying there was a lot of tension among the team. So maybe maybe help me square those those two things. Yeah, yeah. And I think it came down to like in m- most of the other businesses I've done, there's been a a continuity of people, so you kind of know how everybody works. And normally, um, the businesses I've done have been really good. The people that I would normally work with were kind of tied up when we started this business, so I kind of had to get into uh, um, a new network. So they were great people, but we didn't have a whole lot of working history together. And uh, and you know, there were definitely some tensions there. It was okay; we were building a great business, but you then ask yourself, sort of long term is this you know is this going to work and you could see you know i could sort of see problems coming down the mix so that wasn't everything to do with um i was selling the business but it definitely was a factor and the big lesson out of there was i think as a um you know as a founder having founded quite a few businesses you know working with people that you've you know got a long relationship with you know takes a whole lot of tension off the table because you kind of know how people work and I was pretty um pretty hungry as well at that time so I was charging forward so I wouldn't you know and and I'm sure that I would have uh, contributed to that tension as well I mean it wasn't really bad but it was just one of the factors that hey you know this is really really hard work because we were getting pulled in a lot of different directions as a you know fairly lean funded business so, so then we had a choice: do we um, go and raise some money, or or do we do a trade sale? And um, what we knew in that sort of Microsoft environment, building Microsoft tools, there, there's a Microsoft Worldwide uh, Developer Conference that year. It was in Orlando, Florida. So the company that was likely to acquire us uh, was going to be there. So you know, we booked a booth in the show um, and uh, flew over to Florida. You know, we had a great booth. We were I was selling to customers. But and finding partners, but at the same time, we were looking at who would be the natural acquirer of our business and building those relationships. This is such an important point, Rod, and I want to really spend some time on it because so many times I get the question from business owners: how do I how do I get on the radar of potential acquirers? And you did, I think, what what so many people have done correctly, which is to get in front of them at the trade show, be at the big industry event, um, have a sexy display, make yourself look bigger than you are, and you'll you'll get noticed. Yep, absolutely. And there's all sorts of tricks around which booth you take. So what we noticed at the the big Microsoft show, there was kind of three tiers. There was the big global sponsors like, you know, the Microsofts and those sort of companies that had, you know, massive multi-booth displays, you know, little display villages with their partners in. Then there was the second tier companies at the time, the likes of uh, Quest Software, who were the eventual acquirer of us. They were kind of like the next tier back and they were they had a whole bunch of different products inside their um, uh, portfolio. 
And then there was uh, the rest of us, which had you know, the little kind of one cell booths. And like, you know, you want to, you know, what we learned in trade shows, you want to be on the corner booth, you want to be near the coffee. So it was a whole lot of really interesting tricks. So what was interesting is, um, so once we kind of looked at the big drops coming down from the ceiling, it was obvious it was going to be Quest. They, you know, we looked at their website. They had a, a um, business development team that done sort of 10 acquisitions in the last year. So, um, so what we realized, there was this uh, private public company arbitrage. So public companies can go and buy private company revenue at a certain multiple and it was worth more as a public company. So they're going to do that all day. But also the the larger companies and especially the publicly listed ones had already had the sunk cost of a global distribution network. And so they had a sales channel that was already established, established around the world and they needed to keep kind of restocking their shelves by having great new technologies that they would push out through that channel. So And, and companies like that do a lot of R&D by acquisition as well. So what we realized was effectively those types of companies have to buy little companies like us. So we positioned ourselves to be attractive for them to buy. And at the trade show, as you would know, the people managing or the people um, who are manning the trade show booth are normally just sort of salespeople. So they're not the people that are going to buy a company. But the people that were speaking on behalf of Quest at the conference would be senior product managers who think about strategy and uh, empowered to do acquisitions. So we would, you know, go to the booth, we would find out um, who was speaking, and by talking to various people, you'd work out who were the most senior people at the show, and then we'd, you know, go and introduce them ourselves them to the end of conference and basically drag them back to our booth. They'd see the humming activity that was happening at our stand, and they could see how we would fit into their product strategy. And so, Ron, who, who, who made the first move? I mean, did you say, hey, if you guys are ever looking for an acquisition, we'd be interested, or did they... Did you kind of get that out of them first? Yeah, so you know, we, we basically got the right people to the booth, and you could just see when the lights go on, and then you know, then I think the um, the next step after that, there was a couple of key people, and um, you know, they said, "Hey, we should catch up." I said, "Oh, I'm in San Francisco next week. Let's uh, next week, let's have lunch." And it was kind of interesting. I remember um, having lunch with one of their senior people like the next week. And within about 10 minutes um, over lunch, the conversation changed to, so you guys are committed to remaining independent. And I'm like, whatever do you mean? <laughs> and, you know, and, and then suddenly the dance is on. And then um, the next step on from that is, is really getting lock into the organization. So we did lots of live meeting demos and webinars to their team. So once that first person had seen it, the next stage was, hey, can we demo this to your team? Let's set up some webinars. And we probably did four or four or five demos showing what we were doing to the um, internal team inside Quest. And then it was interesting because we were based in uh, New Zealand and they were in um, in Southern California. When I once I sort of felt they were on the hook, it was like, "Hey, I'm going to be up there next Tuesday. Why don't I come and see you?" So we took location out of the equation and you know basically turned up on their doorstep. And that night, uh, the napkin, you know, and it was a napkin, um, uh, came across the table. And when you say napkin came across the table, what do you mean? Uh, with a number on it. And they had they made the first move. They put a number on the napkin. Yeah. What yeah. was the number? Uh, at that time, it was twenty million plus earn out through the due diligence process that went on there for a, for probably about three or four months. We landed on fifteen million cash and twenty million of potential 
earn out if we hit our sales targets, which is what you're gonna gonna do with um uh with with, with an early stage company. So at that point we'd probably only been going for about eighteen to twenty months and you know the whole business was sold and transacted within two years of startup. What did what was your reaction when you looked at the napkin? So having sold another business before, um, where where the same sort of thing had happened, and as soon as somebody said the number, I was like, "Woohoo!" Uh, this time was just uh, completely be silent and not not give them a clue as to whether I was excited or not. But I was excited. I mean, people listening to this are going to find this almost inconceivable. You, you've got a business with with two to three million in annual revenue, and you're looking at an offer of of you know, 10 times revenue, um, it's just astronomical. Yeah, but that was the kind of metrics that were happening back in those days and, you know, in the dot-com and, and, you know, back in the dot-com boom and post that we've seen those and, and um, uh, you know, even in the SaaS space going back, you know, two or three years ago, we've seen multiples higher than that. They've sort of come down. So there's definitely different cycles. But also what you're trying to do, you're not trying to sell sell a business for what it's worth to you. You're trying to sell a business for what it's worth to them. So they could see that, um, you know, we were relatively inexpensive because our revenue wasn't that large. And the um, e- even with that multiple, it wasn't a massive amount of money compared to the total revenue that they would make by um, taking our product and pushing it out through their channel. And I think we were a really uh, strategic buy because it um, – Got them, got got Quest into a really good part of the IT stack uh, for their client base. A very sticky bit of software. So the trick is, you know, if you're um, the buyer of of somebody, and you know, we've done three acquisitions now as part of Zero. So being on the other side of the fence, if you're the buyer, you're obviously trying to value value a company at what they're worth now by all of, of the standard sort of multiples. But if you're uh, uh, the seller. You're trying to um, capture the value that you bring in as part of the acquisition. Of course, and and when you're trying to make that case to the acquirer before the napkin has come across the table, I mean, are you are, are you trying to 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 sell that case of the strategic value of your company to Quest, or are you? As they say, kind of bringing the horse to water, sharing the information with them, and and hoping that they draw that conclusion themselves. Um, so, so it's it's an absolute dance. I mean, they're clear about why they're there, and you're clear about what you're trying to do. Um, and if you've done it a couple of times before, it's I mean, it's a really enjoyable, fun dance. And if you've got a quality product and a quality offering, then um, you know you can be very confident through that process. So you've still got to build a great business. So um, you know we were really focused on that. We had a fantastic product. We had raving fan customers. We had a really good strategy. Our marketing material looked beautiful. The thinking around how we sold it and the process of selling we've done. We've, we had done all of that. And if we had have raised capital, we you know we would have grown a successful business. So you know you do start from a point of confidence. Um, and I think that. Um, you know, because we were quite sophisticated, having done a few businesses before, it was very easy for them to see how it slots in. So you're kind of removing objections. It's also interesting from an earnout perspective that um, if you are selling very, very early, the earnout will be a substantial part of the value that you create for yourself. And um, so you want to, you know, uh, make sure that um, that you will be successful as you as you get into the organisation. And and so once again, you know, you don't 
you know, it's not right to try to sell something, you know, which isn't good. You should have a really good thing to sell and then it all can work out quite well. So talk to us about the, the other founders. So you've got this napkin, you're trying to remain uh, poker faced at its number. What ne- next? Did you convene the, 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 uh, the angel investor along with your co-founders and say, here's what we've got? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the next step is, you know, we tell everybody what's going on. And obviously, right, who's everybody? Yeah, so all of the other shareholders and, you know, the key people in the business. Um, because, you know, some of the, you know, smaller shareholders or people that have come in later, we try to give shares to everybody. Um, you know, so some of them will have to be involved in the due diligence process. So you have to make sure you're doing the selling internally as well so that, um, you know, people don't sort of stop working and all of those things. So there's quite an interesting dynamic which takes place to make sure that you really follow through and continue to be um, a good acquisition. I mean, quite a lot of value can be lost between the original, here's the napkin and the actual deal. So as I said, you know, our original napkin was something like, I think it might have been like 20 million and then 10 or 15, I can't remember, um, but it turned out to be 15 cash and then more in the earn out afterwards. And that was value that we we lost through the due diligence process. We were confident we would make it up in the year now, but um, as we went through the process, you know, we had a quite a long due diligence process. Um, you know, we, we definitely eroded some value in the upfront cash. Um, and uh, there, was a, there was a couple of factors through that, you know, because as they do a, a due diligence, they're going to find a bunch of things. And if they're good negotiators, as they were, they were very experienced, you know, they'd start moving things from the upfront cash to the, um, to the, to the earnout money. And these are some of the dynamics around protecting value. So one of the key things we did was was have a great M and A lawyer on our side of the table. And I remember being in some of the meetings where these discussions were very frank, and you're almost looking at the floor because you can't look up. You know, it's so much tension going on. Um, but you know, having a um, an advisor who's preserving and maximising value. And because, you know, role of the CEO, I mean, I really want to get the deal done and you want to build relationships with people that you're going to work with for the next few years. That's quite different to the arm wrestle that goes on on um, as you're doing the deal. So you want to have, you know, a, a real kind of pit bull terrier that's on your side of the fence uh, helping with those negotiations. But you did not have uh, an M&A advisor representing you. You had this lawyer, but you didn't go out and solicit other bids in addition to Quest. Is that right? No, we knew that Quest was the, was the right organization for us. And we could have gone and, and talked to a few others. But I think that what we had was pretty hot. So the inference was we could go and talk to anybody um, at any time. So we were comfortable with that. I mean, in the textbook approach, you would build deal tension, but I think there was implied tension, um, you know, because there were a number of organizations that probably could have bought us at that time. So what was the consensus among the shareholders when you brought back the napkin of 20 plus more? Uh, did everybody said, yeah, go, Rod, we, we want this deal? Or were there some holdouts? Oh, no, every, everyone was doing the big high fives. You know, remember this was sort of 18 to 20 months at that time from starting the business up. So it was like, holy shit, this is good. And, and talk about the, the return on investment for the angel investor who put in a million bucks. Yeah, I mean, I mean so, um, so obviously they did pretty well. 
Um, I think they got sort of two and a half X time their money in a very short amount of time. So, you know, that was a great result. And I think that's important because each, with each deal you're doing, you're building up more of your network, more experience, but you're also building these angel investors who, if you've given them back a great result, they'll they'll be there for you the next time as well. And other people would have heard that story. So, you know, when I w- went and did zero and we raised uh, 15 million, um, you know, uh, all of those angel inv- or that, that angel investor and a, and a few other people in our network were very keen to get it on the ground floor because we had demonstrated that that you know we we gave returns back to investors. I think it would be helpful for people to hear the kinds of things that come up in diligence. So so there was about $5 million of value loss between the initial napkin and the closing on the upfront cash, more on the earnout, or value was shifted more to risk to you. Can you give us an example of, of something that, that would have caused that, uh, that dilution? Uh, so just I think people would benefit from hearing the kinds of issues that come up during diligence. Yeah, so um, you know, having done a few companies now, and even with Aftermail, we were very clear, and we knew what due diligence looked like. So we had our all of our folders set up. We had all of our legal contracts, you know, all of the customer contracts, all of the uh, people contracts, and IP. You know, we had a, a filing system right from day one, ready to go from due diligence. So we just set up the business with that in mind. We knew that we would probably sell it. So we were structured very cleanly. So it was very easy for us to say, "Yep, here's the." Uh, the data room, all the information that you need. Um, what 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 kind of happened? I think I'm, this is I'm a little bit hazy on this, but I think one of the issues was whether this was right or wrong. Um, you know, we were operating in New Zealand dollars, and I think when they first done their calculations, that assumed that we were, they were operating in US dollars, and so you know, partway through the call or through the process, there was a discussion around, "Hey, look, we got it wrong." This number's just a little bit rich. Um, we thought we were dealing with US dollars. It's uh, New Zealand dollars, and um, uh, and that was kind of uh, one of the big uh, rationales. And I do remember also there was uh, just one kind of slip of the tongue. I can't remember exactly what the situation was, but we were talking about a customer, and there was some sort of slip which implied there was some problems and. That took a little bit of work to get back on because they were obviously going through talking to customers and if there's any sort of issues, that's you know something that they would come back and push us hard on. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was that and then this currency issue and whether they were um, being really, really clever or genuine, it's hard to know right when you're in that kind of heat of the deal. The other thing that's a real factor is you kind of want the due diligence process to be as short as possible. Because what happens is people start taking their eye off the ball, or you know they're starting walking down and and uh, looking at the Porsche dealership, imagining all oh, that might be that car in there might be mine one day. And we got to make you got to make sure that these businesses execute through the period. And we also had a, a really interesting timing issue. Um, Quest's financial year closed at the end of the calendar year, and we sort of done this deal and due diligence sort of at the beginning of November. They didn't want to take all of the numbers into the current financial year. So while everything was done, we didn't. They didn't want to execute it until like the third of January, the following uh, period. So as once after due diligence, diligence was done and the deal was kind of all but signed, we had this period of sort of um, around seven weeks where um, we just had to wait until time ticked over. And of course, you want to make sure that you're still doing the sales months or showing that growth. 
trajectory which you've sold the business on. So holding it all together while people are thinking about banking the check and all of those dynamics is a very interesting time. As you look back at the currency thing, I mean, if your life depended on it, do you think they it was just a, a BS uh, negotiation tactic? I mean, these guys are sophisticated buyers. You, you've just kind of described Quest as an incredibly sophisticated buyer. Uh, to think that they, they, they got all the way through this process and didn't know you were quoting in New Zealand dollars, that sounds a bit, a bit, a bit offside to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that's ten years ago. I mean, it was still a, it was still all a huge amount of money, and we were transferring it to the, um, transferring stuff to the to the earnout side of the equation. So, you know, for us, you know, it, it wasn't a huge deal at the time. Um, but you know, you look back, it was, you know, if it was a trick, it was it, it was very well played. But I, I think genuinely, we had a pretty good relationship with them, and. You know, they certainly played it well. If that was the case, yeah. So, talk about the earnout. Uh, what were the what were the? I, I read some press clipping from you know in preparing for this interview that that you had shifted your role from you know CEO and running uh, Aftermill full time to being kind of a sales evangelist. Um, so, what was yep. the what was the the earnout tied to? Was it top line revenue number? Was it EBITDA? Yeah. Or was it some other? Yeah, so, yeah. So, so the short story is that uh, we got none of it. We, we we got zero, and uh, um, and we were six months out on all of our numbers. So if we looked at the numbers that we promised um, to to get, we, we it took six months. It was six months after the date, then we crossed all of those lines, and we would have had all of it. So so the issue we had, which was super interesting and it's great experience now, was it actually takes a period of time for you to embed yourself in. So we had to rebrand everything. We had to. Uh, we had to go through and do the internal selling to all of the salespeople all over the world. And if I was doing it again, while it kind of goes against your natural instincts, I'd actually um, put a put a time delay on the earnout period starting, maybe three months. And in that three months, you would um, you know ha- have the opportunity, and you'd be very formal about how you were going to. Um, uh, educate all of the sales force, make sure the compensation plans for the sales forces uh, were put in place because the the timer starts right from day one and there's a huge amount of time taken just to institutionalize this new product. And, um, you know, we know that with our zero experience now, even if we're releasing a new product internally, there's still this education program right through the sales force. So, yeah, so in in hindsight, I mean, unless your business is going to stay standalone, which some acquisitions are, our our product got um, got rebranded uh, as a Quest product straight away. So we had all of that work, which effectively slowed us down three to four months. Wow, that that is a twenty million dollar lesson if I've ever heard one, and and incredible, yeah, yeah. incredible uh, insight to share. Uh, you're absolutely right because there's this, you know, there's that three or six month window where. You've got to find your way in this new organization. You got to figure out where, uh, you know, where the sales team reports to, how their compensation works, who everybody is, and build relationships. Such a great lesson. Yeah, but there, I mean, there are companies where it just does stand alone. Like, um, you know, you look at the Microsoft and LinkedIn acquisition at the moment, and you hear two different stories. The Microsoft people are saying, "Hey, we're going to fully integrate LinkedIn into Microsoft Office." So you got this graph of people right in your Office 365 tools, and then on the LinkedIn side, it's no, no, there's no change. We just keep doing our own thing. So, you know, these are the these are tensions you see in very large in very large deals as well. Um, 
And uh, I never counted the earnout, to be honest. I think earnouts you count as a bit of a bonus. And in hindsight, you know, we would have maximized that. But, um, you know, I only ever saw Aftermail as a stepping stone to the other things I'm doing. I, I really enjoyed the the year post the deal that I did inside Quest. So got to see the world, uh, met some fantastic people, but I learned so much about large organizations and global software. So I actually found the um, earnout time and being inside Quest is one of the most valuable times in my career. And you know, still have some great friends and and huge respect for uh, for that team. And um, yeah, it was a it was a really interesting experience. I, I, you know, have always been an entrepreneur and probably a terrible employee, but um, getting that knowledge of how a big company works was absolutely fascinating. At what point in that year did you realize that the earnout was not happening? Oh, after the first six months, you could sort of see that it wasn't happening. So I stayed around for nine, and then, um, you know, uh, I'd already sort of started doing the R and D and thinking around zero because before I did Aftermail, I knew I wanted to do. Um, a cloud accounting product, and I had the capital to do that. So um, we'd already, you know, done lots of thinking around what that would look like. So how long? So, how but, long should the earnout have been under normal circumstances, Rod? Like what, what, what length of time? You were there for nine months, but what was the the actual paper length of time? Uh, well, on on paper, to get the money, um, you know, it was over three years. So usually, two to three years is what you see. But it was interesting though, because when we were doing the deal. I was looking for us to be handcuffed in for two to three years, which we would have signed, right? To get the money, you absolutely would have signed that. But but they had done a, my understanding was they did an acquisition uh, just before and uh, they had trouble with, uh, uh, with one of the founders. So just in their normal deal cycle, they, uh, they didn't lock us in and put handcuffs around us, which we thought was fantastic. I always thought, here it comes, here it comes, here comes the handcuffs, but it never actually came. So it was really just the earnout incentive which kept us there, uh, and um, uh, in fact we didn't even have to be there for for the earnout. So um, that was just the cycle. Normally, you would put an asymmetric clause if you were buying. You would put an asymmetric clause in there so that um, if you wanted the founders that you required to stay in, it was at your choice. And I was sort of surprised that they didn't do that. Hmm. Interesting. And so, you know, the deals that you've been doing now at zero and also that you've seen, there, there would be a clause which you at zero would have the opportunity to get rid of the founders if you wanted to, if that served you better, or ensure that they stayed if that was what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, having been acquired two or three times now, you know, you're much more sophisticated when you're doing the, um, uh, the buying. So, you know, as I said, we've done three acquisitions. And, um, you know, they've been really good acquisitions and, and really great for the founders that we've brought in. So all, I think all of the founders that we've, uh, that we've acquired, because we'll do it with a combination of cash and shares, has done really, really well on the second part of the deal. So with the shares that we've used to acquire them, they've, they've done much, much better than the original deal. So I think, you know, having been brought a few times, you know, we really are founder friendly because uh, we want, you know, we want to we, we want we want to buy people early and their potential and jump from their own independent growth curve onto a better growth curve that's uh, with us. So, you know, I think we show a really strong set of values. So, only ever have one class of share as an example, 
try to look after the companies that we acquire and genuinely feel a responsibility if we've taken them on early that they hit their financial goals inside the organization. Well said, indeed. And, and I guess my last question before before we go is if as you look at the entire uh, sort of arc of Aftermail from founding all the way through to the end of the earnout, uh, if you had it to do over again, what one thing might you do differently? The, the interesting thing around Aftermail is the product that it is we still need today. And um, it just would have been good if we had a bit more capital at the beginning where we could have got going for another year or two um, because I think the product is an important one which um, didn't really you know didn't really achieve its full potential in, in, inside the organization that brought us and uh, if you know just having a bit more um, founder time where you drive it forward it's also really interesting thinking about how aftermail would have been different if uh, Microsoft Azure or AWS uh, was around. So we were still putting, you know, servers next to Microsoft Exchange servers. We were probably just half a technology generation ahead of, you know, if we had been archiving into the cloud, that would have been a really interesting product. So I'm surprised that no one has done that properly yet. Um, In fact, I'm still surprised Microsoft hasn't done it properly yet, but then, you know, email's still fundamentally broken. So, you know, maybe that's not a surprise. (laughs) Interesting. Rod, where can people reach you? Um, best is on Twitter at Rod Drury and uh, you know if anyone's got any questions fire them through or if there's comments on your website I'm more than happy to follow them on but tag me in on Twitter and I'll be right there Rod Drury thanks very much for joining us thanks John Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.